0: Here, that's okay. that's um, I will announce that uh, the next two Wednesdays will be a substitute uh, class, a teacher here. I will be in Chutzlaretz, so my apologies, uh, and we'll, I'll be back in three weeks' time. This coming Shabbat, on Parshat Naso, we read about the parasha called Sota. Uh, Sota. You know, there's a book in English called Sota. Some of you have read it. Um, And it it deals with a um, a real breakdown in uh, fidelity and um, confidence uh, in marriage, where there's a suspicion by the husband that the wife is carrying on an affair with some strange fellow. She's a married woman, obviously, except they don't have hardcore evidence. Uh, The only thing we have is that uh, we know that uh, this wife uh, went off with some stranger to a hotel in a lot, and they were seen going in the elevator upstairs. And uh, only one person was able to verify that they actually entered into a room together. It was one witness. Now, on the basis of one witness, you cannot convict an a Beit <coughs> Nevertheless, the circumstantial evidence is, uh, is, is too overwhelming to ignore. So the, um, the, and the husband can demand that she you know, tells the truth. And she can be brought to Beit HaMikdash. And this is something that we do not have today. And this is the aqueous solution of the mesota, which is all kinds of uh, uh, concoction with a text of the Torah, of the parsha erased from the Chomish, from the Torah itself, <laughs> into this concoction, and she drinks it. And if she, you know, claims th- that uh, all we did was, we had a monthly Seder in Rambam, uh, and it was just comfortable to do it in a hotel room privately in a lot. And they never laid a finger on me, and, and, and that was her claim, and, and, uh, and, if, and, uh, and if really her body doesn't explode from this, uh, this concoction, she's going to be blessed with, uh, with, with progeny, with children and everything. Kadosh B'chuh will excuse her, you know, for, for, and she went through a very, very unpleasant experience. But if, unfortunately, uh, you know, as the Dayan Emet, is, is, is judging her uh, uh, accurately, then she's going to die from this, uh, uh, this aqueous solution. But in the process, we learn many, many things which are relevant to halakha to this very day. One is the very, very erasing of the parasha, where some of the words are nothing less than God's name, and we know that it's forbidden to erase God's name. So that's issue number one, which is a relevant issue, as the title here says, God's name in print. Because we're going to carry it to the next phase, what is considered writing, what is considered God's name, and what is considered the violation of erasure of God's name. Um, Does a computer terminal, a screen, uh, constitute writing? Um, Let's assume your computer is up and running before Shabbat, and you sit down by the keyboard, and you start typing uh, on, on a screen. Is that considered ktiva? So you may say, all oh, right, it may not be k'tiva minatorah biblical k'tiva, but maybe from a rabbinic point of view, it's still problematic. Okay, there's this case to be made here. What about on Cholomoed? There are people who are very careful that they'll only write on Cholomoed that which is necessary. So if you make a purchase on Cholomoed, you know, on a, on a gas station for, for, for delek, for gasoline, and use your credit card, they ask you to sign it, so right. so, you know, if they don't make a stink about it, so you don't have to sign it. So if they insist on a signature, say, so you're allowed to sign it, that's called avud. something that if you don't sign, if you don't write, you're going to lose out, you're allowed to do that. But stop writing, you know, it should be refrained on kolomoyim. So does that include um, a computer screen? You know, you want to sit by the computer homeboy, and uh, type whatever you want, to write a book on the, sc- on the screen. Is that considered writing? So th- these are very, very important questions where technology has entered into the picture. So I can tell you that in the days of the Rambam, Rambam didn't deal with print because there was no print. It's as simple as that, right? From the days of Gutenberg, the days of the invention of the printing press. So we know that there are some inventions... Okay, so Marsha Tekazina is here. Good morning. Uh, I can mention that today's Shurim Mrs. Tech? Oh, she didn't hear me yet. The today's Shurim are in memory of Devora Tema Temi, Bat Chayim Moldechai, and Nechama Leia, which is the sister of Marsha Tekazina and Shelly Budau. Okay, so we, um, we mentioned, we dedicated the shurim I believe all the Shurim today are going to be dedicated in our memory. So, the, um, the, the, um, the invention, that we know that there are certain inventions that obviously made life uh, easier for people, more comfortable, uh, uh, made, made, made life quicker than we'd normally, beside all this is very nice, but there are certain inventions that simply became game changers. Which means, before them, life was A, and after them, life is B. It's not the same life, no longer the same life anymore. You cannot compare even. The, the, the first such invention in the history of the world, of humanity, was the wheel. The invention of the wheel. God did not create the wheel. Man developed a wheel. And a wheel gave human beings mobility. Because before the invention of the wheel, a person's um, radius of, of life's existence was much, not much further than how long his legs can take him. And that's not terribly far. So, come the wheel, and the wheel attached to a wagon, uh, now all of a sudden, it's a new ball game, and we can travel. So, the invention of the wheel was an s- absolutely sensational, um, groundbreaking type of a pioneering uh, invention that gave human beings that mobility that it enjoys till this very day. Obviously, from the first wheel until the types of wheels that we have today, things have developed, but... The idea of the wheel. The second such invention that put human beings from one plateau to another, where before it was just a different existence and now it's completely different, was the printing press. It was the printing press. Because before the invention of the printing press, um, most human beings were illiterate. Most (coughs) human beings were actually illiterate. And it's interesting that Am Yisrael receives the nickname Amasefer, the name of the book, not because we gave it ourselves. The Goyim gave us the name Amasefer. Because Jews were literate. And we had to be literate for the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, for tefillah. So you had to be literate. And there were days where you didn't go to a cipher Stam to write a Sefer Torah, or a Mezuzah for that matter, or a Parsha of Tefillin. You wrote it. People knew how to write the letters properly. Some nicer, some less nicer, whatever. Today it became already a specialized profession, because most people don't know the calligraphy of the alphabet. But um, in terms of the knowledge of the alphabet, it was studied from day one. Day one, the Mishnah in Masechet Sukkah, Daf it says, uh, "From when does the mitzvah of Talmud Torah begin? When, when the boy can uh, start saying Torah Tziv L'No Moshe?" So his first word comes out of his mouth is Torah. You know, so he starts speaking. That's what it gives an idea. You know, first word should be Torah. Fine, but it means a three-year-old already can identify letters and so on. This was not done in the Gentile world. The only ones who did receive that kind of education were those studying to be priests. They were studying to be priests, that so they had to not read the text and so on. But the average person on the street was illiterate. Come to printing press, it changed all that. It changed all that. Books became accessible to the average person, and people started reading. And the knowledge, it wasn't that people were or less intelligent. You can be hyper-intelligent with tremendously, <coughs> tremendously high IQ, but if you're not taught to read and write, you're not going to go much. You're not going to go places with that intelligence. It's underdeveloped and, uh, and not cultivated properly. So the printing press uh, about 500 years ago was extremely important. And in a moment I'll say how important it was even for Talmud Torah. Very, very important for Talmud Torah. But if you just take it a step further, say after the wheel and after the uh, printing press, what was the next most important invention or development in technology that impacted upon the world to the extent that before it was one level and afterwards it's just another level? Telegram was important. That's not bad. That was important. Certainly opened up the world of communication. And from telegram came telephone. And from from there, right? From telegram came telephone. I mean, eventually they figured out how to move sound over, uh, not just beeps, because the telegram was how to send beeps over the, over a the wire. And now Morse code. Yeah. And and uh, and the telephone was really how to have the sound. Uh, be conducted over the wire as, um, as you know, Benjamin Franklin understood the, and others, uh, and they, they developed a telephone. Alexander Bell, because they have a company named after him, you know. <laughs> right, right. He made a company and he says, you know, we've got to do something, so let's make a telephone, right? Is that what it was? It was the other way around, right. So... Um, but Franklin and, something, and Edison, they had a lot to do with, you know, with, with Hashmal. And you might say Hashmal, you might say electricity. So the truth is, there's no doubt that, that they, to a large degree, these inventions, you know, for, certainly moved humanity. But would we say, you know, on a completely different level, with Hashmal, with electricity, maybe. I mean, it really was a, a different world without the electricity than with electricity. But I'm thinking about something even more Super than that, it's the microchip. The microchip. We are now in an age that our parents and grandparents, or well, let's just say when many of us grew up as kids, it didn't exist. It didn't exist at all. And today can't move without it. Because maybe you may have heard in the nineteen forties there was a company called IBM that had a computer. You know what a computer was? Two rooms. Two rooms of structure that could do a fraction of what this little thing can do. A fraction. And that was called the computer, you know? And then they had these cards, remember these computer cards and with binary punch cards with binary numbers? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so. rows and rows of tubes. Right, right. So, so things have progressed, and the miniaturizing of the computer, which was a result of the invention of the microchip, was, as they say, mother, uh, necessity is the mother of all new inventions. What was the necessity... To shrink the computer and, inc- by sh- and shrink and also increase its power and ability, it was the U.S. space program. The what? The, the United the States the space program. Space. Space. space program, right? Why? Why? Because the idea was. Remember John Kennedy? Remember him? Mm-hmm. So John Kennedy, nineteen sixty-one, said we're going to put Americans are going to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. That was his assurance, and. He, he wasn't alive to see it, but it, it's exactly what happened. July 69, it happened. Because there was a race with the Americans and the Russians. So the Americans' uh, engineers had this great idea that what we really have to do is send a, a type of mothership up by the moon and then have a, 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 a space capsule that will detach from the mothership, which then they call the command capsule and the LEM, the lunar module and it would detach, and that would land on the moon, and that would have an ability also to launch from the moon, and it would reattach to the command module, and it would come home. That was the concept. It was, in order to, to do that, they had to the practices, and this was practiced in the second phase of the space program called Gemini, because the space program to the moon was Apollo. The first was just getting up a guy up there in space and then making him come back to life, and that was called Mercury. So by the Gemini, it was, it, was, it was a spacecraft that held two guys. So by Gemini 6 and 7, they did for the first time a word that I learned for the first time, a rendezvous. It's a French word, which entered into the English language. And they, they were like nose-to-nose nose in space, and then they separated. They were practicing getting together. Without computer technology, that was impossible. They had to. So they were working their heads off day and night to miniaturize and miniaturize and miniaturize the equipment, so that it would be lightweight as much as possible and fit into a small computer and work and have that ability. So we today are beneficiaries of that technology. And another thing that they did was they brought on board, and that was already from Apollo 8, half a year before the lunar landing, a, um, do you remember, many of us had uh, video cam cameras. So if you remember back in the 50s or 60s, if there was a... uh, uh, let's say, a news item, a, a demonstration, and they're covering, the you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, they're covering it. They had these huge cameras, and five people had to roll it, and it was heavy like anything. And then afterwards, it was like a little bit on the shoulder, it was a little smaller, and then afterwards, you don't need anybody to hold it, you need two fingers to hold it, a cam camera, because it's lightweight. And of course, the first ones to have it were the Japanese, and that's how we knew about it because they come to, to the hotel as tourists. So that's what we used to know: what's new, what's new in the in the in the business. You know, you go to the hotel, you get to see the new Japanese inventions and so on. But um, that technology was a result of the space program. So this is very important. So and, and it's also computerized. So everything today is computerized. Almost everything is computerized, and, and that means we're living on a different planet, a completely different planet. Now, this all impacts with regard to Torah. Because while the Sefer Torah itself has not changed at all in terms of the requirements of how to write a Sefer Torah, what should be in there. And it's the same Sefer Torah. V'zot torah shesam Moshe if Israel. It's the same Torah. I mean, it's a different par- parchment, but it's the same Torah. It's the same B'rishit Barah that Rabbi Akiva read, read, and that uh, Hil read, and, uh, and so on. And it was probably the Malachim of, uh, who did Hakel, who read uh, from Dvarim. It's the same Sefer Torah, but Yoshi'ahu found. Same Sefer Torah. And that's amazing. After 3,500 years, that there is one textual change, one, in the whole Torah, amongst the communities of Israel, and that is the Yemenite Sefer Torah in parashat Noach, where in our Sefer Torah it says, Vayu, vav yud hey yud vav, there it says, vayehi, vav yud hei yud. There's is an issue whether this will be a vav at the end of that word. The only word in the whole Torah that there is an issue about a shinui girsa, as they say, and that led to chuvis of Rav Moshe, French and others, you come to invited to a, uh, a Simcha by your uh, Yemenite uh, neighbors in their shul, <coughs> and they want to give you an Aliyah. The fact that you don't know how to lane, they'll excuse you, all right, don't worry. But, because uh, they know how to lane from day zero, you know. So, so are you allowed to say a Brocha on a Sefer Tyre that if this would be in your shul, the Rav would say it's Pasul. They're missing a Vav. Sevet is missing a letter, is Pasul. And the Torah that has an extra letter, is Pasul. So that's the only, only issue with the Sevet Torah Temani uh, about the Kashrut, because of a Vav. But I'm just saying this as, if that's all after 3,500 years of Arba Kanfot Tevel from all over the world, copying, 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 and you didn't make a mistake, a mistake didn't fall in, it's, it's absolutely amazing. It's miraculous even. But when it comes to texts of the Oral Law, Mishnah, Gemara, the writings of the Gaonim, the Rishonim, the Rambam, and so on, there you do not have those type of strict laws of copying, so it was prone to human failures. And indeed, many, many scribal errors did fall into the text. And sometimes some of the great uh, Rishonim and or Achronim were aware of them, Sometimes they were not, which means occasionally, we know today, it's even more than occasionally, that they're commenting on text that we know today are, t- are corrupt texts. And that's a very serious uh, story, because uh, you know if you're, if you're saying something of a halachic nature, and you're banking it on a text of a rambam. And now you can prove that that wasn't rambam, but there was some scribe who made a mistake, who skipped a line by accident, which can happen. It's called minatomot. If, if the end of the line ends with the word, let's say, uh, el hamakom, and the next line ends with the words, el hamakom, when the copyist looks here and looks there and looks there and looks there to copy, so sometimes his eye skips a line, and he's now on the next line, whereas he skipped a full line. That has happened often in the copying of text, often. And then there's times where the cipher made a mistake, or he f- thinks he forgot, and he writes it between the margins. So the next copy is not sure. Is that part of the original text? Not part of the original text. Some thought it was, some thought it wasn't. And, and, and this has led to um, a, a real, really big, big, big issue. Now, in the yeshiva world, they prefer not to deal with everything I just said in the last two minutes, and rather to sanctify that which has come down as the Vilna print, the Vilna Shas of the last 250 years ago. And the one who really um, uh, forwarded that position was the Chazanish. Chazanish said that if this is what God, the, the, the divine decree would be the text of the oral law today, so be it. And you break your head and try to understand what you have in front of you on the table. But the rough son, Rav of Rav Chaim who was a great Talmud scholar, he said it was also the divine decree that in the late 19th and 20th century we would find all these texts. And we have found so many texts, whether it was the Cairo Gniza and whether it was other uh, sources like the Vatican Library, where they stole, you know, rampaged our uh, texts when they, when they, in the days of the Crusades and so on. And, and they have a tremendous library there, and they even boast about the great library of the Vatican. But but it's all spoils. It's all stolen goods because we didn't make donations to the library of the Vatican. They were they were taken, and and there was only at the time after 1963 64 when Pope John the 23rd had the Ecumenical Council and things were relaxed and he allowed Jewish scholars to come and microfilm the material. He didn't allow anybody to take anything, but he allowed you can go there with a camera and film. So today you don't have to go to the Vatican anymore. You go to Hebrew U in the in the right here. You don't even have to do that. All you have to do is be linked to the Hebrew University site on the computer and at home you can bring up whatever. T- you want to look at a Rambam that was written in the 100 years after the Rambam? You know, As long as you know what to type in in the search, you're going to get it right on your screen. Which means that the way Torah is going to be studied, I say going because it's already started, but hasn't infiltrated yet the world of Torah study. Print infiltrated. You, I don't think you're going to find a bismedrish in the world where a Rosh Hashiba will say, print? It's chadash. It's new. Chadash HaSurman torah." We, the rabbinu Tam and Rashi, they learn from manuscripts. We're going to learn from manuscripts. You know anybody studying Gemara for manuscripts today? You know anybody not bringing a printed Sefer into the bismedrish but everything is a manuscript? Nobody does that anymore. But you think the first hundred years there wasn't a fight? <laughs> of course there was a fight. But they lost the battle. Just like there are certain groups when, in, when Internet you know, began and there were certain groups, as you know, without remaining nameless, who, who fought a tooth and nail. Fought a tooth and nail. Then there were some people that came to their own you know, rabbis and they said, one second, but in our work, you know, environment. We have computers. We need it. So then there was a to for this and a to for that and a to for this and a to for that. And before you know it, all your prohibitions cave in because of a new reality. The fact that today, if you go to shopping in Rami Levy or Supersal, you're busy bumping into all those people with the carts who are filling computer orders. right? Most people don't go shopping anymore. I go with my wife shopping. Why? Because my wife asked me to go. So I go. That's what you think <laughs> I know why I go shopping? <laughs> But, uh, but a lot of people don't go shopping anymore. They just pick up the phone or on the computer, excuse me, on the computer, right? I mean, today uh, you make a, a an order from, a, you know, from burgers bars. Who makes a phone call anymore? You go online, you type in what you want, you know. You want with pickles, without pickles, you know, that, they, everything, everything is there. Everything. And you give an address, you give your credit card number, and it tells you within the hour, and they'll be there and shine, and that's it. This is the world. This is the world. It's been completely, completely computerized. So I had a great teacher at Bar Ilan. His name is Rav Shlomo Zalman Havlan. Rav Shlomo Zalman Havlan, he happens to be a Lubavitcher Chossid, but not, categorically not, a Meshichist. He's not there. He's not a Meshichist. He's not one of the guys who you'd see at the uh, Tachat with tefillin. Are you, are you Jewish? You know, not, not, none of those. I mean, not that he's against that, but he's not that kind. He's an intellectual Chabad, but he's also a tremendous Talmud and a big Rambamist, that's what we call them expert Rambam, to the extent that in the Hebrew Encyclopedia, if you're familiar with that, that's a serious academic work, Encyclopedia I've read. He wrote the article on Rambam, and he wrote many, many other articles. So he was my mentor at Ilan, and um, he explained once that when we talk about the end, the demarcation lines of the end of periods of Torah Shabbat, We talk about the Tanaim. So the Tanaim, every third grader knows that the Tanaim are the writers of the Mishnah. And who are the Amoraim? They're the writers of the Gemara. And who are the Geonim? Then the Rebbe in third grade is a little stuck because the Geonim didn't put out a corpus uh, as we know it, but uh, they had uh, some Svarim, and they had Shelo geonim, and they'll give you a few names, uh, famous ones, Rav Haigaon, Rav Shira Gaon, Rav Sadya probably the most famous, and a few others, fine. And they get to Rishonim. Ah, Rishonim, we're all, these are handy household words, as Rashi and Rampam and Rampan. Say, the, we're more familiar with the Middle Ages. And then you get to the Achronim, the later ones, that's like the 15th century till today. So people say the Noid of Behuda, the Chassam Seifer, you know, some people throw in the Mishra Bura, the Chavitz Chaim, you know, and if you want to really stretch it, you'll call, say Raboshah Feinstein or Moshe, whatever, you know, it's the last 500 years, fine. So this is a, a very general... So, But where exactly is the line? Where's the line? You think at the end of the period of the Mishnah, Rabbi Judah Nasi is the editor, not the author, the editor. That's a speech in itself, I want to do that now. He's the editor of the Mishnah. You think his son, Rabbi Gamliel bin Noshe Rabbi Anasi, thought that the line is over his head, his father is the end of the Tanaim, and I, Rabbi Gamliel, begin a new era... You think that was the case? You think he knew that he was moving from one era to another? For sure not. He's mentioned in the Mishnah. He himself in Parashat Sheni of Perkei Avod, Ram Rabbi Yudazi. So one says, is he a Tanna or is he an Amora? If he's in the Mishnah, he's supposed to be a Tana, right? And then you have the first generation of Amoraim who we are familiar with, both in the Talmud Bavli and Talmud Yerushalmi. In the Talmud Bavli, it's Rav and Shmuel, and in the Yerushalmi, it's Rabbi Yochanan. In, in both of, the, uh, in all three cases, there is a phrase that pops up in the Gemara when a Mishnah or some source from the period of the Mishnah, it could be a Breit Tosefta, but some period of the Tanaim for sure is, is, is there, and it's put against an opinion of either Rav or Shmuel or Rabbi Yochanan. And the Gemara is baffled because Amoraim do not argue with the earlier sources. They explain the earlier sources, but they're not there to argue with them. So the Gemara will say about these three, and only these three, Rav Tanahu Upalik. He's also a Tanah, and he's allowed to argue. Which means, instead of harmonizing the opinions, we simply say, it's a mechlogia, it's two opinions, it's the Mishnah against Rav, it's the Mishnah against Shmuel, it's the Mishnah against Rabbi Ognath. What does that mean? So I heard this from one of our great professors at YU, Rabbi Dr. Meir of Shalom, who said that Rav never knew he was in avira, Nobody told him. Nobody told him the secret. We know it today, in hindsight. But he received smicha from Rabbi Yudanasi. So what do you think? He's, just, he's, a, he's a colleague of Rabbi Yudanasi's son, Rabbi Gamliel. Did they think that they started now a new era? They didn't know that. So they're so close to the era of the Tanaim, they're also Tanaim. That's really what the Gemara says. They're also Tanaim. I, they only, they don't, you don't see them in the Mishnah? Sadah. So, so the, the Rabbi ha- Professor Havlan said, he says, what ends a Tkufa period, from our point of view, is the emergence of a Sefer that is all-inclusive of all the learning Torah Shabbat that was done in previous years and generations and was accepted by Kla Yisrael. Because if you have a Sefer that's all-inclusive and it's accepted by Klai Yisrael, that's the end of an era. Certainly the Mishnah answers that call. It was a corpus that dealt with, while Rabbi Yudanesi demonstratively did not put everything in, but he put a lot of things in, most of that which we should know, and and it was accepted by Plyasov. So that's why the Rabbi Yudanesi becomes the end of the period of the Tanaim, irrespective of the fact that his own son can appear in the Mishnah as well. So too with regard to Talmud Bavli, as opposed to Talmud Yerushalmi. Talmud Yerushalmi in Eretz Yisrael was never... Codified, was never accepted in a sense. Talmud Bavli became the authoritative text for all subsequent discussions of halacha. And it ended at a certain period, at the end of the fifth century, beginning of the sixth century. So this is something that encompasses, encompasses all of the Torah Shabbat as much as possible. And it's accepted. So that's why it is the end of the Amora'im. All right, so now when is the end of the Gonim? There's not one book in the period of the Geonim that answers that call, that a safer emerges. You have a safer of this and a safer of that, a Sefer of that, but none of them are all-encompassing, and none of them are, were accepted by all of Klai Israel. So where does it take us to? So the problem, Barry Havelin said was, we have a false image as to when is the end of the period of the Gionim. Because everybody agrees that there's got to be some type of an overlap. Just like between Tanaim and Amoraim, so those three, Rav, Shmuel, Rabbi Yochanan, overlap. They clearly are Amoraim, but they're still part of the Tanaim. So it's a transitional period. That we can understand. But transitional period, usually you think of a generation. A generation, that's fair game. (coughs) What about uh, between Amoraim and the Gionim? So there's actually a pretty well-known transitional uh, generation. It's called Rabbanan Svoraim. So we don't talk about them a lot, but they are really the late, late amoraim. Some of them even make it into the Gemara, and most don't. But what are they doing? They're already explaining the Gemara. They're the ones who have their last fingers on the text. Yet, we assign Rav Ashi and Ravina being the end of the Gemara. But they're really not the end. They're almost the end. We've got this transition between the Amoraim and the Geonim, who are called the Rabbanan Svoraim, from the word svara, which means explain. They were commentaries. They were commentators. Early, early commentators on Gemara, who are mostly anonymous now. <coughs> but that was the transition between the Amoraim and the Geonim. Very short period. But between the Geonim and the Rishonim, we say Rishonim we mean Middle Ages, when does the Rishonim start? So if you ask anybody in the yeshiva, oh, it's before Rashi, for sure. Rashi's teachers, Rabbeinu Gershom. Rashi's teachers were students of Rabbeinu Gershom. So I'm sure we've heard of the Cherem Rabbeinu Gershom. You're not supposed to read somebody's mail. Right? Remember? You know that. There's a Cherem Rabbeinu Gershom, not to read somebody's mail. So what are the 21st century Shilas? Are you allowed to read somebody's email? Facebook? Um, yeah. It faxes, right? Somebody sends a fax on a machine, and it doesn't go to a private house. It goes to some office. Why? The, the recipient doesn't have a fax machine at home, but somebody works in the office, send me a fax at the office, right? People do this all the time, right? So you see, it says on it, you know, give to, you know, now You saw it, give to Schleimi. Okay, what am I supposed to give to Schleimi? Let's see. You're not supposed to read it. It's not for you. So, is it really part of Cherem the Rabbeinu Gershom for something like that? For sure, from the laws of Derech Eretz, you shouldn't read it. That's clear. But what about Cherem the Gershom? So, there were many poskim of the 20th century who said that with regard to modern-day mail, which today, given the fact that I get a postal delivery once every two weeks, so I don't know what modern-day mail is anymore. What we call snail mail today. I don't know what the mail is anymore. Who sends mail? Remember, I used to go to America, I had to have a half a sakit. You go to America? Here, you can take the mail. You know, like, remember those days? Who sends mail today? Nobody sends mail. Except once in a blue moon, I have a check for the IRS, you know. <laughs> Do me a favor, put it in the mailbox. That can happen. But generally not. So I remember there was said. There's a difference between a sealed envelope and a postcard. Because a postcard is open. It's, what is a postcard in modern Hebrew? A gluya. Because it's galui, because it's opened. That's why it's called the gluya. It's a piece of mail that's not sealed. So it's a gluya. It's an opened piece of mail. So if the person who sent the gluya wanted it to be classified information, that dope wouldn't have sent a gluya. He would have put it in an envelope and sealed it. The fact that he mailed, right, he went on a trip to, to, to Milano in Italy, and you you got a picture postcard from some, uh, some some site, and you want to send it back to Israel, hi, I'm doing well, and everything. You don't really care if anybody else sees it. Let the postman read it all Says, Ma, I mean, you care? If you're writing an open letter like that on a postcard, it's open for all. So how can you have cherub Ber or something like that? And once you have those kind of piskeh halacha around, and we do have such piskeh halacha, I think I didn't shut off, um, so, um, what about a, a, a Facebook? A Facebook, you know very well, is Rashuta HaRabim. It's what's called in Hebrew, Parutz. It is just wide open. Anybody can get into Facebook. So, once anybody can get into Facebook, it can't be Cheren Ben or Gershom anymore. And uh, what about a fax? So too, you know, sometimes we send sensitive information to facts, uh, forms and documents and stuff like that. So I think Derek Heretz dictates that if the fact says, give it to Shloimi, just give it to Shloimi and don't bother being a, a, a you nude, know, a, a, you, know, you know, a voyeur just to see what, what it is. That's not, that's not right. But would it be cheirem b'gerishem? That's, that's very very. It's like a gluya. It's like a postcard. It's revealed and open to all. So, so, Rabbeinu Gershom is the Rebbe of the... Uh, his student was the Rebbe of Rashi. So, it's two generations for Rashi. Is Rabbeinu Gershom from Mainz, from, from Germany. And, and he's like the Or called he's like the, the light of the, the diaspora. And he's the beginning of the Rishonim. We're talking about the uh, mid-11th century, the so beginning of, end of the 10th century. So, these are already Rishonim. And in Spain, we have Moshe ben Hanoch, perhaps less known but also a luminary and other places. So the period of Rishonim, the medieval greats and giants of Torah, begin in the 10th, 11th century. Okay, fine. When did the Gaonim end? You think anybody in Baghdad, which was the seat of the yeshivot in in Bavel, which today is modern-day Iraq, uh, somebody got up on the table and said, Adkan geonim, <laughs> mikano lahaba <laughs> rishonim. We're finished with the geonim, now we start rishonim. Nobody ever did that. Geonim means, it doesn't mean that they're all geonim in our sense, you know, geniuses, giants, and everything. The word geon for 500 years was a title of the Rosh Hashiva of the Yeshiva in Bavel. Now that Rosh Hashiva could have been a genuine Torah luminary, like Rav Sadiye Gaon, like Rav Hai Gaon, Rav Shire Gaon, Rav Yudai We know some of them by name because of works that they actually wrote, and they were certainly great. But we also know that some of the nim were nothing less than president of the yeshiva university. They were administrators. So yes, in Yeshiva University. There was a rabbi, Dr. Revel. He was a gaon in every sense of the word. Dr. Belkin Alvashol, tremendous talmud chacham, got smicha from the Chavos Chaim at age seventeen. Rabbi Lamb, Shibadel laor chaim tovim, was a nice, fine talmud chacham, and so on. And then we had a very nice administrator, Mr. Richard Joel. He didn't come from the academic world. He didn't come from the Yeshiva world. There was a choice that the administration made. We're going to make now President Yeshiva University a Mister. But he's still president of the Shiva University. And there were Geonim who assumed the helm of the yeshiva because of administrative ge- uh, abilities, and they weren't the, the top man in the Beit Midrash. It happens today even in some yeshiva uh, Gedolot and there, or, or Yeshiva Tichonit, where Rosh Yeshiva is Rosh Hashiva by name. He's the figurehead on top. But there are some fellas down there who can learn better than him. That's okay, it's not a, not a disaster. As long as you give the proper kavon anyway to the periphery on top, which not always happens. But, um, but it, 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 it's something that we know. So the Rambam in the 12th century already put his finger on this, that there was some of the geonim who were ignorant, who were ignoramuses. So they weren't big damn. So where did the word geon come from? It came from a phrase in Sefer Yeshayahu, geon yaakov, which means the bright, geon means the word bright, of yaakov, which is amiswole in the diaspora. So the Bavel was representing Jewish diaspora, and they were like the shining light, as if to say, that's where the title came from. It was only later in history that that word became associated with somebody who was a luminary, who's an outstanding luminary. And the first time it was given such usage was Rebbe from Vilna, who we call the Goin, The Vilnagoy. That's the, That's a little over 200 years ago, and he's called the Vilnagoy. And from then until today, every Tom, Dick, and Harry is a ravagone. Everybody, right? There's certain communities you go to enough, Everybody's a ravagone. A ravagone, Ravagon. All you have to do is grow a beard and you know lit for and you're you're there. You're, you're already a ravagone. You're going to see it in your mailbox. And uh, and, and if you and if you, you get a position, you get a position as, as as this rabbi or that rabbi. Then for sure you're a ravagone if you don't know anything. Right? I and mean, we have a former chief rabbi who's sitting in jail because he's a crook. And, and we knew he was a crook beforehand. and We also knew he was an ignoramus beforehand. But he was a Ravagoyn. But he was a ravagoin, Yeah? He can try a million signs. Ravagoyn, Ravagoyn. Yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and, and and this is because the position, you don't want anybody less than a Ravagoyn. So I remember when the rubs of the turned 80 back in uh, 1983 So there is a Torah journal in the United States published by Agudat Yisrael, not exactly the best friends of Yeshiva University. The editor-in-chief, his name was Rav Simcha Elberg, Zechariah Levracha, and he was a big zealot, a kana'i also, for a very, very Haredi hawk, I would call him. But he had a personal friendship, personal friendship, deep personal friendship, with both Dr. Belkin, the president of Yeshiva University, and the Rav. This goes back for years before, and he had tremendous respect for both of them. To the extent, I remember Simcha Elberg coming to, when the Rav gave the Chuvadrasha, when he gave the shir for Yortai for his father, you know, he would be honored with a front row seat and so on. Very nice. The, the, the relationships were more than cordial. So when the Rav turned 80, this Rav Simcha Elberg wrote the most beautiful article in, in a good israel based publication called HaPardes, and it was called. The title was Sar HaTorah, the Minister of Torah. And he wrote two things in that article. That um, the first part, any student of Wayu, anybody ever heard a share from wayu from the Rav, knew how true it was. But it was good that Borupak heard it. <laughs> the oilam the Tzibur that would read Hapardes. He wrote that if take-off on the Gemara Masechet Baba Batra, Davdalit, that says, whoever didn't see the building, Beit Mikdash, that Horodos built, never saw such a beautiful building in his life. Mi shaloha abana, she bana horodos, lo horah binyan yafer miyamav. So he did a take-off on that, and he says, Mi shaloh shamash hi'ur, meyrav yosur be'er salavechik, lo shamash hi'ur tov miyamav. Never heard a good share in his life. So fine, okay, so... Not that we needed, or the Rav needed a hersha from Rav Simcha Elberg on that, but I think it was good that his audience should hear something like that. But more than that, he writes, that the Rav restored credibility to the word ga'on. He says, we live in Borough Park, and every Tom, Dick and Harry is a Rav Ago, and he says, I got news for you. It doesn't mean anything anymore. And I heard once Sef, Zichon, Rav Amad Yosef, the Bracha here in Eretz say that there's attrition, you, is attrition on the word, on the meaning of the word Gaon. Because if everybody's a Gaon, then nobody's a Gaon. It's like Rav Kugzal said, if every, there is Shabbat, then there's no Shabbat. And if the whole world is Eretz Yisrael, so there's no Eretz Yisrael. And if the whole world is Klai Yisrael, then there's no Klai Yisrael. That Kedusha is a result of Havdalah, Mavdil Ben Kodesh Ben Odu If you don't have Havdalah, then you have nothing. Then nothing, It's worth, it's valueless. So if everybody's a Gaon, then nobody's a Gaon anymore. That becomes the normal. That becomes the mainstream. So he said that the Reb restored the word, the 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 the, the, um, the, uh, the value to, to 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 the credibility to the word Gaon. If you really want to know what it's all about, check him out. Check him out. And I thought that was just a very very good comment. So we go back to the period of the Gaonim, and they in Bavel in the tenth century, the eleventh century, in the twelfth century, they're still in business. I mean, what do you mean still in business? They still Yeshivot there. They're still teaching Torah, and more important, they still see themselves as the address for world Jewry to turn to them for their halakhic questions. Now in the 6th century, in the 7th century, the 8th century, they were really the central Torah authority, and if you sent them a letter by some courier to Baghdad, to the yeshiva of Surah Pumpadita, and the rosh yeshiva responded, you, you sent a check, you sent a donation, So this was a fundraiser also. The yeshivas sustained themselves because of the income that they received from the key for serving them as uh, halachic responders. But what happened in the 10th and 11th century with the emergence of local yeshivot in North Africa and in Spain and in Germany? Who needs to send a letter now to Baghdad? I've got my local gaon in the backyard. I don't have to send anymore. So, the, and so the, uh, uh, the position of those yeshivot and bavel started shrinking. Started shrinking. But it was a slow death. It took 200 years until the one who delivers the knockout punch is the Rambam of the 12th century. And the Rambam, what he does is he puts out the Mishnah Taira. That is a sefer that is, incorporates all of Torah Shabbat and was accepted by Claudius Yisrael. Sir Rav Havelin says, so even though the period of the Rishonim, medieval greats, may have begun already 200 years before the Rambam, the 10th century, but the end of the Geonim is the 12th century, with the appearance of the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. Because in the 13th century, you don't hear of Baghdad anymore. You don't hear of them. them, they're off the radar, as they say. They're not there anymore. I mean, they're still there, but nobody's looking at them anymore. Okay, so when's the, when does the Rishayim end? And when does the Achroinim begin? So we go back to that definition. Let's take a look. There was the tour of Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher... And on the tour writes Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Beit Yosef. And the Beit Yosef abbreviates his Beit Yosef and becomes the Shulchan Aruch. And Rabbi Yosheh Isilis, the Ramah, puts, the, puts the, 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 the tablecloth, the Mapa, as he calls it, upon the Shulchan of the Rabbi Yosef Karo. And that pretty much gets accepted. So let's call it the Shulchan Aruch of Rabbi Yosef Karo and the Ramah. And for most people, that seems to be the point of demarcation. Comes Rav Havlan, he says... The demarcation is the invention of the printing press. Because before the printing press, the study of Torah was on one level, and after the invention of the printing press from 15th century onward, the study of Torah uh, changed dramatically. Dramatically! It's not the same type of study of Torah. If you are studying Mishnah or Gemara from a manuscript, The first order of business is to look at every single letter and make sure you're reading something correctly. That was a task in itself, just to make sure what you're reading is right. Before you start getting into the analysis of what you've read, you're spending most of your time uh, authenticating the text itself, perhaps comparing it with other manuscripts and so on, which took a lot of time, a lot of effort, and then you eventually get around to the logical discussion of the material. If you have a text on a table that's been printed, all that work has been done already. You take as a given, this is the Gemara, this is the Mishnah, this is the Rambam, that's all. And now I'm like light years ahead in terms of my own Torah study. And you take all from there. So Rashi is now in print, the Tosvot's in print, the Rambans in print, the Rajbah's in print, everything in print everything in print. I don't have to break my head to see, am I sure I'm reading the right Ramban? Maybe there's a mistake here. Nobody worries about that. They just take it as a given and now we're learning on a different plateau, completely different plateau. And that's the way learning has become until the t- late 20th and beginning of 21st century. So what happened in the 20th century? The, the microchip. And now because of the microchip, we are able to go back to the days of manuscript investigation, which means a note of skepticism on what I'm looking at in my printed text, and now it's not a difficult task at all to check out. As a matter of fact, there are computer programs today that give you the split screen, and we'll say, all right, I'm learning a Rashi now, Gemara. I have a hunch there's something wrong with this text, and I can bring up on the screen eight different columns of different versions of the same Rashi, where the computer will highlight for me the differences. So I don't have to squint and read the whole text eight times and overlook something. The computer is going to give me a color highlight, and all of a sudden you see, hmm, now the text in Rashi reads a little better, and now I'm beginning to understand it. Now how long is this going to take for this type of learning to infiltrate yeshivas? It may take another generation, but no more than that. Because all of learning is going to become c- computerized. Remember once a time there was a thing called chalk? And, a, and a, there's no such thing as chalk. I hate to break it to you. If you ever go into a classroom today, you are not going to see chalk and a blackboard. You're going to see an overhead projector. That's what you're going to see. And a barcode. You're going to see a screen. And, and if there's a board already, it's going to be markers, magic markers that they write on board with a little schmatter, you know, to, to, to erase it and so on. But blackboards? Forget about it. But but even that, nobody's using that anymore. Students have computer terminals that the teacher can put up the text that he wants to put up from his desk, and everybody has it. And it's only a generation away where the Rebbe in Gamora is going to do the same thing. And he's going to do it by having B'nai Torah, who are also in the world of high-tech, develop that kind of uh, program that will allow for this type of teaching to take place. And what I'm talking now is not theoretical. It's real. It's real. So, with all that introductory material, (laughs) I remember one of my great teachers at YU, Rabbi Tendler, he taught us, uh, you have to cultivate the art of constructive batola. (laughs) This was good. This, I think, was very, very important to understand where print comes in. Because the shiloh of writing God's name, in having it printed is, is, is a bona fide child. So I'm just going to give you a little bit, some uh, Rosh Prakim, some uh, headlines here. If you take a look at source number 7 on the second page, towards the bottom, source number 7. See, we did a lot. We're already at source number 7. The Gemara says <laughs> in Maserif Gitin, Amar of Nachman, Naktinan Sefer Torah, we have, Naktinan means we have adopted. We have adopted for halakhic purposes. Sefer Torah min yisarev. Who are the minim? The minim are the he- early Hebrew Christians. The early Hebrew Christians. They are the minim. And the bracha that we say today in Nusach Ashkel is used to be Vala minim. It was a bracha that Chachamim didn't know what to do with these early Christians and they asked God take care of them. You take care of them. We can't deal with it. That's the history itself. If I'd start on this, we'd be here until the next three weeks. The uh, Min Yisareif, you burn that Sefer timer. Imagine a man who was born Jewish, he believes that Yeshua is Mashiach, and he, and he belonged just before Christianity moved out of the Jewish orbit, and became adopted by the Roman Empire, the name of Constantine, in the beginning of the 4th century. The, um, uh, a, such a Hebrew Christian that writes a Sefer or for that matter, an Epichirus, a Jew that doesn't believe in God, but he's a Sefer stub. That's a beautiful sephotire. Beautiful sephotire. So the Gemara says, Yisaref, take it and put it in the fire. Next opportunity with you know, burn it. But katfug akum avdei kochavim, which means, this is censored material, avdei kochavim is always nochrim or goyim. It means a uh, goyim, but he's not necessarily, uh, he's, he's not a pichiris, he believes in God. He believes in God. It says yignaz. you put it in gniza. Now, what's the difference between sreifa and Gnizah? Gnizah, you don't burn the Sefer. You just put it away. You put it in hiding. And it's not there for any public or private consumption. You're not going to use that Sefer Torah for Kriyat HaTorah. But you don't burn it. Why don't you burn it? Because the feeling is that maybe the Goy who believes in God wrote the Shem Hashem with the sanctity of the name of God. Why shouldn't he think so? if he really believes in God, and he, re- and he says, I am writing Hashem's name now, so he's instilling sanctity, Kedusha, into the shame. Now, maybe not. We don't know. We're going to interview him. We're going to take his word for it. So you can't burn the Sefer Torah because maybe he did um, write the name of God with the proper sanctity, the Kavanah of sanctity, or maybe he did not. So you're not going to use it in shul for Kriyat Torah or for Torah study purposes. But if an Apikaira, somebody who doesn't believe in God, so it's, it's ridiculous to think that he had Kavana, he had intention to write Shem Hashem with kedusha. He doesn't even believe in God. So that's why the first Torah is burnt. The second one is put into gneisa. Now this whole this gemara generates a whole discussion whether the printing press can cause kedushat shame, the sanctity of God's name. And it's interesting that on the first page in source number four, which is actually a rather lengthy uh, source here. The Pis- Piske Uziel was the second Sephardi chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbenzion Uziel. He was the parallel mm-hmm. chief rabbi with Rav Herzog here in Eretz Israel. And a tremendous tam-achom. and he analyzes both sides of the coin and takes a hard line here and believes that the printing press can sanctify God's name if when the person is printing this he has Kavana Shem Hashem. Now, this question of can the machine uh, cause some status change that's important in halakha, can it do it, came up already before printing texts with sidurim and chamashim and so on. Well, it came up with regard to baking matzah. The whole question about matzahs in a machine for not so much to say that it's going to be chametz, but, but can you use it for Seder night, for the mitzvah, when you have to have matzah that's baked l'shem matzat mitzvah? So there are some today who adopt the opinion of the 19th century Rav Chaim Halbashtam, the Rebbe of Sons, who said a machine can't be Makadesh matzah. You know, you push the button. Matzah means you take the dough and you, the Jew, puts it in the oven, physically takes it out. That's what it means you're doing it l'sheh matzah Mitzvah. Not by having a conveyor belt move the dough along and, you know, just watching it along and saying l'sheh Matzah's Mitzvah. But many, many poskim disagreed and said, No, you can say l'sheh matzah Mitzvah every single time you activate the machine and it's all l'sheh Mitzvah and most of us have machine matzahs even for even (coughs) Machine Matzah, for that matter. But those who don't, it's because there's this issue. So the same thing with regard to writing Shem So if it's printed, does that cause Kiddushat Shem with all your great intentions, or does it not? So he brings both, Rav Elzeo does bring both views, and does take the hard line that he thinks that uh, the printing press can activate, he tries to prove it, but he is Honest enough to tell us that there are dissenting opinions. Most prob- but he doesn't mention who, the dissenting, who all the dissenting opinions are. In my book, the most important dissenting opinion was what the Rav told us in the name of his grandfather, Rav Chaim Salvechik, the Rav of Brisk. And Rav Chaim from Brisk believed that the printing press categorically cannot sanctify the letters. And if that's the case, why do we have this as an issue? You go to shul Friday night... And, you know, they give out all these alonim, um, all these Torah, uh, you know, whatever. And whether it's in English or Hebrew or French, you, know, you, you have to bring a, a sal, you know, to bring it all home. There's so much material there. A lot of it have quotations from the parasha with Shem Hashem and so on. What do you do with all that? Is all that geniza? I mean, we call Shem And people ask me a lot of times for uh, Pesach, you know, we've got all these uh, notes and everything. What do you do? you have to put it in Shem so, it's, first of all, it becomes an impossibility. You, you know, sometimes you know that you can't pass and that it's all shamus because nobody can deal with all that amount, the volume of geniza. But even before that, the psak um, that, the, the print cannot cause the sanctification of letters means that, that it's not, there's no prohibition of mechikat of erasure of God's name. That's very important. But if it was used for a mitzvah, like tefillah, davening, like Talmud Torah, it's a printed chumash, shouldn't be thrown into the garbage, but should be dealt with in a more respectable way. So how do you deal with something, a ripped page from a siddur, in a more respectable way? You're not going to throw it in the garbage. So many of the rabbinim t- today have issued a halakha, that if you put it in paper recycling, that's a respectable way of dealing with paper. Because it's going to be used again for print, whatever it is, whether it's going to be a safer or whether it's going to be a different book, it makes no difference. But it's not like throwing it in the garbage. But if there is no receptacle for uh, recycling of paper, then we can treat it the way we treat the peels of the Shemitah peels, where we put them in a sakid separately, and then after a day or two it starts decomposing, you take it out to the garbage. And, and the fact is, you're not throwing it. In the same garbage bag as the other garbage, but you've shown that there's something different about it, and there's nothing more than that because we call bizayon mitzvah. It was used for a mitzvah, so same thing with regard to a ripped tzitzis. Ripped tzitzis doesn't need gneisa, but uh, the minig is that you don't just throw it right in the garbage, but you know you can put it in a sakit in a plastic bag and and, and dis- discard it uh, in such a way because it doesn't have inherent kedusha. So too, bar away a uh, lulav. Or, or a schach from a sukkah, or even a shoifer for that matter, does not have inherent kiddushah, and if a shaifer cracks and it's no longer valid, so what do you do with it? So, hey, you throw it right in the garbage with all your leftover food, and it doesn't look good. There's something psychological about that, and also what's called bizu mitzvah. So you have to dispose of it separately. Fine, but it can be disposed with. So here you have these two points of view as to um, how to deal with Shemashem. This happens, by the way, in those days that we had... Blackboards and the teacher would write pesukim on the board. So sometimes, what about shema hashem? I remember there were situations where a teacher, innocently enough, wrote the whole pesuk out on the board, and all of a sudden, hey, the shame hashem, and the principal was called in. and What do you do? And you know, you have to if they chisel out that part of the blackboard and put it in ghesa, and that, <laughs> you know, sometimes you. The rabbis tell us that sometimes you know what the Pesach is before you, know, you figure out why. You know, the, the bottom line is already built in, and now I just have to fill in the blanks. You know, how did you get there? You don't have to chisel out a blackboard. That, that comes from, by the way, if I have a mistake in a Sefer Torah, in a letter of Shem Hashem, what do we do with it? I can't erase it. If it's just another word in the Torah, I can erase it and rewrite the word. But if it's shemashem, so then you have to take a surgeon's knife, called a sakinya pani and cut out that little um, you know, rectangle of Shem HaShem and put that in Geniza and then attach another piece of parchment from the back and sew it on or paste it on and rewrite Shem HaShem. That's what's done, by the way. Sometimes if you get an aliyah, you all of a sudden you see a, a patch, like a knee patch, and it's in the back because there was a mistake. And that's the only way to correct Shem HaShem in a, a Sefti so bringing this back to what we started with the sota, sotah, so the Gemara says that here you have a scenario where the Torah says you have to write the parsha on cloth and include several times God's name and you have to take a knife and, sh- and scrape off the letters and put it into this aqueous solution for this isha sotah, for this woman to drink. So the Gemara says that a kadosh baruchu was mochel, was mochel. He, he, he was willing to let go on the prohibition of, of, um, of erasure of God's name. So here the mitzvah includes erasure of God's name. It's part of the mitzvah. You have to do this. Why? To promote shalom b'nishnarehu. Because in other words, the whole point of the parashat sotah was to get down to the bottom of it, that there should be harmony within the marital context. And if, if uh, this very strange um, ceremony could in any way or manner promote... That the uh, that the woman does not want to go through this embarrassment because it was an embarrassing public uh, ceremony and and somehow they get down to it that uh, that really she was uh, she, she she did not uh, you know violate you know her her marriage with the husband um, so that's so at least so the Torah has provided a great function yeah isn't there a slight contradiction how would a woman feel when she's accused by her husband yeah doesn't sound too great, right? <laughs> so that's, that's why we have marriage counselors. So, no, I'm not joking. That's why we have marriage counselors, where sometimes it, it starts off messy, but then after you sit down, you talk it out, and, and um, you know, sometimes there are misunderstandings, and, and so on, yeah. Was this actually practice?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, but story. by a chain, it Did never ben worked
0: anymore. Yeah, ben Sarumar says, say yeah. says never was. was this yeah. one? This on one, time? yeah. There was this... Yeah, there, the, the, There's no indication that this never happened. There's no indication this never happened. Right? That, no. That never happened according to the Gemara. Right. But uh, but, but the Sotah doesn't say anywhere it didn't happen. So it's a... Uh, and, and there's good reason that it's in the Chumash. And, and, and she has to stand there, you know, hold the, the Korban Mincha there, and, and they, they take off a hair covering, which in itself for her was an embarrassment publicly. So from there, all kinds of laws are now studied about hair covering. and so on. There's so many different issues that emanate from the discussion of Parshat Zotah that it is a relevant issue. But one of them has to do with Mechikachem, erasure of God's name. Okay, so... Um, we will meet in three weeks' time. In two weeks, next week and the week after, Phil Chernofsky will have somebody, whether it's he himself or you'll you'll see the uh, Torah Tippets. Okay. okay.